Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Delivery Pod. I'm Nicholas. And I'm Kevin. And good afternoon. I've got our first guest today, Paul McCormack. Paul is founder and CEO of Infinium Logistics Limited. Um, and Paul's got a wealth of knowledge around logistics, last mile, worked for a number of companies in the UK, has more recently worked in India and America. That's right. Got that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So he comes with a wealth of knowledge and we're looking forward to Paul's input this morning or this afternoon even. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. Paul? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, Good. likewise. Um, so in episode one, we set the context and talked through three main factors that we feel are changing the world of delivery. Uh, again, as a reminder, the first is accelerating e-commerce, more and more packages into our cities. The second is evolving customer demands, what used to be five-day deliveries, now two-hour delivery, and lastly is changing cities. In five years' time, it's going to be hard to drive a van or a car into most European city centers. And so that kind of sets the framework for how we see this world as changing. What we'd like to focus on today is one of the technologies or one of the, the, the form factors that we're using to cater to this new world of um, of logistics, and that's that's micro fulfillment. And so, um, before we we dive into what the world is is changing into and and how we see the space evolving, it's probably useful for the listener or or watcher um, to understand how it works today. And so, Kevin, you have a you have a wealth of experience in the space. Could you maybe zoom out and kind of walk us through the the the, the, the trip that a package makes in, in what let's call today the kind of traditional logistics model. Yeah, sure. And um, I'm sure Paul will add to it if I get it wrong. Um, in, ter- in terms of traditional logistics, it can, parcels or goods originate from either a manufacturer or a distribution center. And most of those have migrated to the middle of the country. Okay. So they will come from those sources, be collected from that big warehouse mm-hmm. and then go to a sortation center and that sortation center will then sort it to what they call a node but it's really a delivery station that is close to the point of consumption so it would move from uh, warrington to glasgow yeah okay. can i hop in there can yeah. i ask you to explain um which, which player is involved at every step of the way yeah and so mm-hmm. it's it's originally being housed by the retailer, right? Either the retailer or third-party logistics company. Okay. And so, then that, that, that transition to, to the fulfillment center, that's being done by a logistics player, right? Usually a logistics player. Okay. Usually very little of it's done on its own transport now. Yeah. Uh, but there are some retailers still running their own transport. And they what they call is in-feed into networks. Okay. Yeah. I think um, we're probably quickly getting to one of the main one of the main themes we're going to talk about today, which is it's it's quite a murky world, and there are a lot of different players. They're doing lots of different functions. Yeah. But so I, I cut you off. Um, yeah, no. So once a parcel arrives at a delivery point, it is then sorted to a a route, a last mile route. And people know that term quite well. Traditionally, a man in a van, mm-hmm. and that man in a van will take a pre-sorted geography route. And we'll go and deliver, and in some cases collect, and bring a reverse logistics back in. Reverse logistics isn't as big as as it once was because 
the number of small manufacturers and smaller stock holding is smaller in our cities now. So 90% of what parcel carriers do is deliver. And then the collections are usually from our big centres in the Midlands. So that's traditionally how it's been built up. Retailers themselves get fulfilment on a on a regular basis mm-hmm. again from big big warehouses or manufacturers into what they would term as regional distribution centers and those regional distribution centers would call something called milk runs okay a milk run being something that a guy goes off in a commercial vehicle delivers to retailer one two three four yeah so by the end of the day is delivered to all his retailers on his roll cages or his pallets, so larger vehicles, and then goes back to his, his local. And, and, so, and so the first example you gave is is one where it's being delivered to individuals' homes. And so it's a truck, it's a van with 150 packages that goes around as delivery yeah. after delivery. And the second example you gave, that's that's um, to, to retailers. And mm-hmm. so it's it's more of a stacked order. Maybe you're getting to, to four of those per day in your example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Paul, is there anything that, that Kevin's missing out on? I don't think so. That's a great explanation. Um, I suppose the only thing I'd add to it is that there's a similarity between a lot of the large parcel carriers where they'll have, I suppose, their depots or delivery stations, whichever terminology you prefer. Um, They'll be dotted around the country. They might have 60, 70, 80, Mm -hmm. but they typically sit on the outskirts of the city, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. So then you'll actually, as Kevin articulated, then you'll deliver your final mile typically on vans. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously, we're seeing that transition to EV, but that's still very, very small percentage at the moment, but that that is a well-trodden path. Um, one of the frustrations, I suppose, you see in here around uh, for those who are pushing for decarbonisation, you've mm-hmm. got a lot of vans going down the same routes. So, you know, one of the, I suppose, themes in the future is like, I mean, how can you, from a macro point of view, make that even more efficient rather than having the same organisation? So a much more uh, deep and meaningful debate because obviously there's a lot of commerciality built into it. But I think a great, great description in terms of how the model works today. Perfect. And I think you're, you're touching on a few points that we're, we're going to get to shortly. Um, maybe just before we start ha- talking about um, how it operates today, you have a, a lot of experience outside of the UK as well. I think the example you gave, the Midlands, et cetera, is, is, a, is a London or UK specific example. Um, would that the model that you outlined be reflected in other European countries in the US? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a there's a kind of most efficient way of operating, as Kevin has articulated. You're going to have large, you know, fulfillment or distribution centers, and then you'll have smaller nodes. Some people will go even to smaller nodes, like in India, they'll use things like Quran, as they call them, which are like smaller kind of local depots or or sort of like parcel shops. So okay. ultimately, local people would operate, but ostensibly, it's the same sort of operation that you'll see. Um, I think what you'll also, which is something just to bear in mind as well, is there's different operating models. So you'll have different organizations using different employment models, which I think is also something to bear in mind, uh, particularly looking at um, some of the operations in terms of the vans, the ownership, et cetera. Because I know we Mm. we touched a little bit, Kevin, you know, we chatted about, you know, kind of working conditions and things like that, just to bear in mind. But anyway, that's probably uh, another another discussion as well. But to answer your question, I would say there's a lot of similarities between how the different countries operate. um, uh, But I would say the speed of transition to alternatives is probably uh, more pronounced in uh, in certain areas. Yeah, and I think um, it'll be interesting to drill down as to what are the elements that facilitate a transition or those that, that 
kind of keep us to a, to a traditional model. Um, and so just to summarize what we're hearing is that the package historically has gone from a central storage facility, either managed by the retailer themselves or a, a third-party company. Um, it's then moved to a sortation facility on the outskirts of a city by a traditional logistics player, and then delivery is done from that sortation facility on the outskirts of the city. Um, you know, driving into town, taking yeah. an hour, and then going out and doing all your drops and going back out and what you're calling milk runs. Yeah. Um, now let's let's zoom forward to to today uh, and some of the evolution that we're seeing in the space. Maybe, P Paul, can you walk us through, and I think you're, you were starting to get to some of this before, how is that traditional model changing? Well, you just mentioned there about congestion. Mm -hmm. And I think we've just seen that in the city of London is a great example where, you know, it's very difficult to, I mean, it's uh, it's probably the most difficult place on the planet to move around. I've spent a lot of time in Mumbai, but I would say that uh, London is every bit as difficult. Wow. So that's a, that's a big statement. Yeah, I know it is. It is. I'm sure my Indian <laughs> friends are probably going to challenge me on that. But I think um, if, you, um, if you think about it, so I've got a number of choices. Um, firstly, it's going to become nearly impossible to operate ICE vehicles, so internal yeah. combustion engines. So I've got to start thinking about an alternative. So if I'm a logistics business, do I switch to EV? Mm. Um, and that that's um, something we're seeing certain operators doing quite quickly. Um, and then they've got the challenge about where all the infrastructure is from a charging point of view. And then you've got others who had take a view that what we'll do is we'll actually bring bulk volume into the city. Um, so I sort it outside, but I bring in a large vehicle and whether I use a tail lift or I drop it off into a location and there's a lot of detail sits in that, but just at a headline level, I bring the volume in in bulk. So obviously that reduces the CO2 emissions because you're bringing in that larger vehicle, but then I don't have, you know, I'm basically replacing 10, 15 vans that I would have otherwise had to bring in. And then the next question is onward delivery, uh, which ultimately could be done on, uh, cargo bikes or even walkers. Uh, within a sort of a one and two mile delivery radius. So, yeah. So, Paul, do you think that's going to change? Because the traditional is once a day network, isn't it? it happens at night, gets to a delivery station, a depot in the morning, and then goes out. Do you think we're going to see the need for change where this is more of a continuous flow? That's a great question. Um, Yes, but then I also think there's a question mark in terms of how, I mean, what, what we're all being challenged with now is how we rethink about mm -hmm. from an environmental point of view. So some of that can be driven by costs. So some retailers will encourage me to go back to store. So I drop that off and obviously there's an encouragement. I've got that footfall again. So that's good news for them. Um, or do I go to a parcel locker? Because just think about it from an environmental point of view, I can deliver hundreds of packages to one location. That's got to be good. But does the customer demand change or do I still want to deliver it? To, do I still want that delivered to my door? Mm. I mean, we chatted a little bit earlier on the fact that, just before we just, just generally catching up, uh, on the fact that, um, you know, will the customer behavior change? Yeah. Um, will I expect... Do I expect, like, I mean, if we take one of the largest delivery businesses in the country, if we take Amazon, for example, most of their deliveries will be next day. Yeah. Um, I know six months ago, eight months ago, our deliveries tended to be in the morning, they now come in the afternoon. You kind of get used to it. It's a good service. Happy with it. Others offer time deliveries. You get a text. You get so. Anyway, I, I think the other piece I would just make reference to when I talked about out of home delivery, you'll see a huge difference. And at the point you raised about what's happening in different countries, if I take the Scandinavian countries, you know, 70, maybe 75% of all their deliveries are given to a parcel shop or to a locker. Mm -hmm. They don't understand and can't believe that we actually 
parcels delivered home. Mm. So it's a kind of very, very different model. So we're touching on a few different things now. And we're, we're, we're going in deep immediately. So I'd like to pull us out a little bit. Um, and you explained a, an evolution in the traditional model where instead of going from sortation facility on the outside of a city to a home, um, there's maybe a middle step where you're using larger vehicles to bring goods into the city. And then from sort of some sort of center, you're then distributing those to, to nimbler vehicles that are able yeah. to do the, the last mile delivery. Um, wh- what does that facility look like? It's effectively a small warehouse, one might say, um, but it's not. I mean, we'll probably get into the different types of uh, fulfillment facilities. But when I'm talking about that example, whereby you're bringing in larger volume, I would assume it's going to be sorted in maybe cages or bags. Mm. Um, if I give a practical example of a site we've actually taken in London um, and the dynamics of that site is really important. It is actually a car park, but it's got ground or street level access. So basically we can roll cages straight into the facility off the van and then it's actually distributed on cargo bikes. quite a simple facility not all car parks and i could probably talk all day about car parks mm. but not all car parks will be suitable so it is a it's a facility that has you know open space if you will like a small warehouse that you have the ability to to operate um it would be okay would you add to that yeah i think the ability to unload is a really interesting dynamic i think when we think about whatever means and we call it middle mile so the middle mile being it being till you get to your last mile yeah and and that middle mile is traditionally just goes to into a depot and then from a depot it goes outwards i think the middle mile is a changing piece ball where you've got to find a different method and if you're going to use a car park which has limited height mm. multi-story how do we get that product into yeah. that type of facility and it's interesting and that's that we found the ones well i i think i uh, out of a particular project i looked at about 600 car parks and i believed only half a dozen would be suitable for the operation mm. and you make a very valid point about actually parking that larger vehicle outside mm. is is not going to work in every location we're doing the listener a, a disservice and we we explain w- what you do but we haven't actually heard what infinium does and so maybe if you could take a minute or two and explain yeah, I- sure. exactly infinium's product yeah so we founded the business back in 2019 uh, effectively to focus on the decarbonization of the logistics and we realized that it was going to be multifaceted because not everybody's going to approach this in the right way um or in the same way rather than the right way um so um Within Infinium, we have a number of different strands. So when we look at this exact example where we find micro-fulfillments or micro-hubs across Europe, um, or we work with partners with out-of-home solutions, which is effectively parcel lockers, and we find the right locations. And then the next bit is, I suppose, moving into the, the piece I, I spoke about earlier, which is the transition to EV, whereby we've actually created a fund to build purpose, uh, well, purpose-built facilities to focus on uh, charging of commercial vehicles, uh, because I think I, I, I don't know if I mentioned, but there's probably less than one percent of the vehicles of commercial fleet in the UK that has been transitioned, and the infrastructure we've recognised that the infrastructure probably isn't there at the minute, and we felt that we could play a really important role in that across Europe. Okay, interesting. And so today, I think we want to focus exclusively on this this micro fulfillment topic. And so, in in your model, you're you're taking existing assets like parking lots and you're yes. converting them into 
a kind of it's a turnkey solution so that a log logistics provider can come in, yes. rent a space from you, and start operating from from day one. Um, we throw a lot of terms around in this industry, you know, micro fulfillment centers, which I hear a lot about because Zumo's background is in kind of rapid grocery and you know the gorillas and gutiers of the world, um, but also you know micro hubs, which mm. is which is delivery mates bread and butter. And so, um, Kevin, could you walk me through the difference between a, a micro fulfillment center and a, and a micro hub? I'm always going to try. <laughs> um, no, I think a micro hub for me is is what logistics would call a cross dock operation, and okay. a cross dock means it just comes across one area and into another. So it would be a pre sorted number of parcels into a route that was already pre sorted. They would immediately go into a vehicle, and the vehicle would go out on the road. Mm -hmm. The hub itself needs to contain a number of things. They want it needs to be security of the vehicles. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, typically if it's a car park, it's going to be fenced off to some degree. The second is charging, and, and Paul touched on it. Charging for most like electric vehicles can be done off a 13-amp supply. You just plug it in, and away you go, and your battery is done on a, a, large, a large battery. Those batteries and those charging will, will probably evolve further. There are charging cabinets now that you can just use a single phase in and, and away you go. So charging is really important. I think Paul made that, that part, whether it's a larger vehicle or it's a light electric vehicle. So a microbe will need charging facility. Mm -hmm. And if you think about a car park, logically, it doesn't have electricity apart from lights. Um, so finding those um, that right infrastructures there, having the ability to be able to get the goods into cross dock is there. But it, it really think of own hub as being nothing, no stock holding. Okay. It just comes in, goes out. Okay. Whereas micro fulfillment center, which Paul's probably better um, based to talk about, we'll talk about having stock holding. Yeah, it's like a, uh, I mean, some of these locations are like a like a small convenience store. You know, you'll have your cigarettes and alcohol on one side, you'll have your frozen goods on the other, and your kind of ambient product in the middle. And you're moving fast, moving items, which kind of makes uh, which makes a lot of sense because you're you're limited with space. I think the bit that w we've realised is that you know that isn't necessarily um, going to be attractive in all locations. So depending on because you're talking about re or we're talking about repurposing existing locations, some will already have a particular asset class. They'll have particular restrictions already in place, particularly if you're trying to convert a car park. It as ostensibly is a car park. Uh, what we're talking about is very, very different. So and then also bear in mind that operation. Um, and there's probably two different classes I would call out the micro fulfillment. And then you've also got others that would be using that as a food location to actually mm -hmm. To, to, to prepare food, again, like that's dark kitchen. Dark kitchen, okay. yeah, exactly. And then that has a slightly different dynamic. But if we just go back to the the micro fulfillment, you're talking about, you know, three, four, five, six thousand square feet maybe um, okay. as a as a typical size. And um yeah, and it's like a convenience store. I, I mean to be fair, a lot of these organizations, these fast super fast delivery services have been really good with the way that they've managed their drivers and tried to find waiting areas and try to make it as 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 um uh, you know, as as sort of um, appropriate as possible, you know? Yeah. And I think I'd love to get to kind of public and government reaction to this shortly. But maybe just to summarize some of what we've said recently, it, it sounds like um, mi micro hubs are largely what you're calling a cross-docking operation. They don't inherently store anything 
Um, they are a site in which you can take goods from a large vehicle and distribute it to a, to a more nimble vehicle. They're also a site that can store those vehicles and charge those vehicles. Now, if it's a charging van, you probably need to work on the infrastructure of that facility a little bit to be able to charge um, such a large uh, battery. If it's a cargo bike, it's the kind of thing you can plug into a wall, and so that's quite easy. And so it sounds like micro hubs are, are fairly simple operations. If you get to micro fulfillment, it sounds like um, the, the big differentiator there is that you're actually storing some of the goods on site. Now, yes. the example you gave is a convenience store or what I think is commonly called these dark stores um, that, that rapid grocery players uh, yep. are utilizing. Um, and lastly, one that I, I don't normally think about or include in this category, but it's the kind of the dark kitchens of the world, which is in itself a form of micro fulfillment as well. Yeah. Um, and so we're kind of breaking those down by, by what they're distributing, um, but also what they're, what they're doing in there. Um, now, the, the dark stores have come with a fair bit of backlash in, in recent times. You know, the rate they've exploded across countries. Um, I think we've heard of examples in Europe, like Amsterdam, um, where there's been a temporary ban um, on, on growth of dark stores. Um, is, that, is that something that you're nervous about? Yeah, well, I mean, I can speak from experience that we're finding uh, getting planning permission to to have uh, not in every location, but certain locations. There's uh, there's been a pushback. Mm -hmm. um, some of this has already been uh, preemptive, where uh, residents have um, gone to their local councillor or MP or whatever and said, "Actually, I really do not want to have uh, these uh, these facilities nearby." And you'd ask yourself, "Well, why?" I think their experiences in some of those locations, because you're offering such super fast and some fantastic delivery windows, that's brilliant. But you, in order to do that, you're going to have a lot of drivers sort of hanging around. And some of the experiences, particularly if there's groups of drivers outside, you know, then there's kind of noise issues and and just, you know, general nuisance. And I'm not, yeah. you know, so that's that's something that we've seen. And that's like one of the reasons why in Amsterdam and Rotterdam, they've they've basically put a stop to it. Um, and as certain councils in um, in the UK are are similarly nervous of that same operation, so how we combat that is we're actually providing a lot more detail in all of the applications that we uh, put forward to explain exactly how the operation will work, standard operating procedures, safe systems will work, and things like that. I think that's the bit that we add to it as well as we we get into a layer of detail um, because there's the, the phrase as we've just discussed today, you know, can mean different things to different people. So. Uh, but I think ultimately, you know, I am seeing a pushback um, uh, largely around the number of drivers that are typically hanging around, if that's the right term to use, outside the facilities. So is that akin to having a taxi rank outside? Is that, the, is that where residents are finding the problem? Yeah, I mean, and, and some of it's very personal to, to residents, you know, in terms of individual incidents that happened. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, when I look back to it, I, I was working in... Um, in, in India and, you know, I could have 100, 150 drivers kind of hanging around outside restaurants and, you know, no one even noticed. But, you know, if, if you're going to have large numbers of drivers hanging in you know, around, and, um, then that's something to bear in mind. I think there's a probably, uh, you know, one of the things here is about, I read actually a report some time ago, I'm going to, I think pretty sure it's a DHL report, but I checked that. <laughs> but they talked about things like um, flexible logistics, flexible transport, you know, kind of that sort of, looking at how we might be able to do things in a slightly different way. But they also talk about automation and data management. And I think that's the other piece as well is like, could we actually find, because I'm sure like drivers don't want to be standing around because they're not making any money. Yeah. So 
is there a way that maybe those resources could be used elsewhere, which is my experience in, um, in Mumbai. Um, just so the point I wanted to go back to as well, just in terms of the overall fulfillment piece, there are other operations out there who are storing fast moving items, not necessarily um, sort of ambient food related, but, you know, kind of products for, I've got an example of somebody I'm working with, who I know well, who's storing like coffee cups, coffee lids, coffee replenishing for lots of kiosks around the London area. Yeah. So the demand goes to their warehouses in Bermondsey and then they're able to support right across the London area in a cargo bike, you know, so it's again, it's, so, so there's a slight variation on a team there in terms of the, uh, the type of fulfillment solution that is, uh, is on offer. Yeah. Yeah. I think whatever f- solution we come up with though has to cater with all the demands of inner cities, you know, how do you get food to restaurants? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and mm-hmm. in itself is a, is a challenge. Um, yeah, I think micro micro fulfillment centres for me. I've, we all know about the fast ones, and they've they've come to market. Um, but we're also getting retailers now becoming a fulfillment centre in their own right. Absolutely, great show. When you think about actually after COVID, um, or even like when COVID kicks off, first you've got all these retailers who've basically got last year's stock sitting on the shelves. What am I supposed to do with it? So, you know, you can. That was just one maybe crude example, but you know, delivery from store is obviously. Uh, is, is an option. Um, how do I consolidate that? We're hearing about green zones, kind of areas where this is again about collaboration. Uh, I mentioned earlier about, you know, numbers of vans going down the same street and stuff mm. like that. You know, there's a commercial angle to that, but if you're looking at this from a holistic point of view of, and an altruistic point of view, well then how can you get people to work better together so you don't have several vans going down the same street, probably all empty, um, when, when maybe there's a, a consolidation to be done. And that's something I think we might see you know, further down the line. And I know of certain cities around the world that are starting to look at that in terms of builder locations and then try and consolidate um, rather than having lots and lots of different operators. That um, delivery from storefront is uh, an element that's probably worth touching on. We, we were mostly focusing on parcels that are coming in from outside of the city through fulfillment centers to someone's home. This is all after it's been ordered, right? When in reality... Um, Stores are inherently stocking a lot of products on site, whether it's fashion or electronics or or, or anything, um, and increasingly they're offering our delivery. And so recently, I was I was buying a shirt, and at at, at the checkout, I was able to choose whether I wanted it delivered in an hour. Um, and that's something that that's not possible in the traditional model. Um, and that's a a key need that's brought on by one of our one of our three key pillars, which is this evolving demand from customers for 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 speed. Um, and it, it also highlights one of our initial points around how, how murky this space is. You know, it's not a product that flows in one direction only. It's, um, it's going out to, to storefronts, and then it's going to homes, and maybe it's returned. And so there's a lot of intra-city logistics, more and more intra-city logistics, as opposed to just kind of uniflow. Um, and so I think it, it reminds me of, you know, when, when Amazon first brought on two-day delivery, it, it, really, it really shocked the world. Um, but then a lot of businesses like Walmart that already had large footprints across the city were actually able to bring it on pretty quickly because they basically had fulfillment built Absolutely. out everywhere, whereas Amazon had to build it out for the first time. Um, and so, so you're seeing players like Uniqlo and cities who are doing delivery from storefront in very, very fast times. Um, one more point I wanted to make around um, the, the kind of noise element of, of micro-fulfillment is um, it feels like there's a, a kind of a, a, an education part of this you know i think one of the big benefits of 
of fulfilling something locally is you're mitigating the need for large delivery vans to come outside of cities. And so there's this there's this bad, which is pollution and noise from large vans, which is mitigated by um, fulfillment centers, and people don't really make that connection. Um, do you think there's a way that we can kind of talk to people about the inherent benefits of, of, of this logistics model? Yeah, I do actually, but I think I'd even go back a step, which is, um, and some of the people I've been working with over the last year or so have been trying to define um, uh, areas of the city right down to, you know, the curbside specifically. So what is acceptable, you know, areas where you can park, you know, large vehicles, you know, it's all done, you know, in a, in a very coordinated fashion. But linked to that, again, is also about agreeing that this is a location that is actually okay to use for, you know, for this type of activity. You know, I think there's a recognition that has to happen somewhere, but I don't think there's a coordination. I think it's getting better, but I don't think there's a coordination across the 32 boroughs of London where actually, you know, this is a good thing. I think once you start it, that's the thing with these, is once you get a, a, a workable solution in one area, then I think it will get better. So I think you're right. I think it probably is a, an educational piece as well. Um, and I am seeing some more kind of acceptance of it but but you get into the real detail here it's like who owns the location you know in some locations you've got a five six seven landlords um and it's just it's complicated but we're as i said we're trying to find a way that we can actually allay people's fears that actually this is going to be a properly run you know well-organized facility that actually is going to be to the to the greater good of um uh, of the residents nearby do you think part of that problem, and I know I'm just going to ask you because I know you came from an HR background, do you think part of that problem is the reputation the gig economy is built on itself? Wow, what a question to ask me. Um, yeah, I think that is that doesn't help. I think there is a suspicion about how our drivers being paid. Um, uh, and again, if you go back to where it starts from, is uh, I, if I'm running a delivery business, what guarantees have I got from some of the customers I work with and then how much am I going to take a risk of you know I'm going to secure 100 drivers but I don't know whether I'm going to have the work for them so I think that's there is a there's a lot of detail sits around that um, I'm seeing some organizations that are really in trouble at the moment because they decided to ploy all employ all of their staff which is a very altruistic thing to do but then if you don't get the if you don't get the, the volume to come in as well then that becomes a uh, that becomes a real risk the only thing I would say just and I know it will come up in one of your future podcasts, but I think I'm seeing some really cool and innovative stuff, particularly around cargo bikes with advertising, which I think is a fantastic way of the delivery providers like those businesses, small businesses, and ultimately the drivers of actually getting some extra revenue. And I think that's actually a really cool thing that actually benefits lots of parties. So I see those type of things actually having a uh, positive effect. But it's a great question, and I think... The, the, there's a large percentage, I won't give a specific one, but there's a large percentage that are still using contractors uh, for the reasons I've mentioned is because of how the, you know, I'm not, no one's getting a guaranteed 10 year contract anymore. That, that just doesn't exist. You know, yeah. you're, you're on much shorter terms. And as a result, I'm going to cut my claw to measure. My final point would be. Sorry, uh, when you say okay. you're on, the, it's a, the writer is on shorter terms. The driver or well the rider might be on very flexible terms and yeah. that's uh, you know you know if 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 they're truly self-employed then they'll have no there'll be no mutuality of obligation i'm not guaranteeing you any work because i'm not being guaranteed work so i'm not going to guarantee it to you yeah. but actually i think some of what we've been discussing today in terms of there's obviously you know when i said drivers hanging around 
you know, if there's opportunity for them to work across a number of different suppliers, then I truly am self-employed, number one. And then number two, you know, obviously I'm, I'm actually, uh, it's, it's valuable to me, but it's also valuable to, to all the parties. So um, I, I think it's something we shouldn't lose sight of. I'm glad you raised it, Kevin, because I think it's a, it's a fundamental of the industry that we operate in. And I don't think it's necessarily, it, it gets, it's, it's noticed by, by a broader audience of how complex this can be. But I, as I said, I am excited about some of the things I see coming downstream because I think it does actually, it does actually offer, um, uh, you know, kind of more opportunity to individual riders who, who, who are starting to choose this way of life, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the other one that you mentioned was collaboration. And so collaboration in terms of the logistics industry has only been come about when there's acquisition. So mm, fair point. I can't think of one, and I'm looking at you to tell me I'm wrong, I can't think of where two medium or large organisations have collaborated on something as fundamental as what needs to happen in our cities. I can't think of a... Well, I mean, I think there'll, there'll be specialist services maybe mm. where... But I think the, the the only thing I can think of maybe is when you look at the, the Highlands and Islands or, you know, down in the South Coast mm. where you, you will... The, the, the same carriers will be used. So we all accept that maybe we're going to pass to another part. Maybe that's the thing. But I, I'm trying to think now of a of a real sort of handshake where, you know, you and I are going to work together. We're going to share and stuff like that. I mean, the technology is certainly there for sure. Um, and if I give an example whereby, going back to my friend in the Bermondsey example, he's probably going to be thinking, of when, when did I get my plug? But, mm. you know, all of the carriers will drop off at his warehouse facility, you know, just south of the river. Every single one of them will go to the same location. He will then overlabel it, and then he'll drop off to set locations. Some of them are actually lockers. Now, the recipient of that loves it, absolutely loves it, because I don't have five, six, seven vans coming to the same location. I have one. It's a very well-organized process, and it's very, very clean. And so that works. So it can work. And the recipient in that scenario is the operator of the locker? Because they have one van well, coming. Yes, but it will actually be, you know, if I give you the example, as one is a university, so uh, and you know, and then the concierge doesn't get, you know, overrun with with uh, with parcels coming in. So and that's ec- economically, it's just more efficient to absolutely to aggregate seven different. Absolutely. So so the vans will go to well, the, st- the vans are still in London, but they're, and they're, but they're dropping off at a central location, and then that final mile, literally final mile, is being done on a cargo bike. But then the good thing about it is that the the from a security point of view as well, so it's kind of cool because the university staff get to know it's particularly you know probably the same driver every day and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that may not work in every scenario because from a locker point of view, you know it's easier, it's impersonal to an extent. But you know I've got a service to deliver. I go, I put in the locker, I take the return. Happy days. Um, and I think this is where we got back to the what is the actual customer promise here? Because I've seen all these stats in terms of customers are prepared to pay more. You know, Doddle have done a really good report. They do some really fantastic stuff here. They're saying that some of the feedback they're getting is that customers would pay, would be prepared to pay more, maybe up to a pound, I think, more per delivery if they thought it was more sustainable. Okay. Um, and and I, I, I genuinely believe that we'll see more and more of this growth of out-of-home delivery um, purely because I think, you know, every, the thing we haven't talked about today is cost because, you know, cost of delivery is going up cost of people's running their operation, everything else. So you've got to look at alternative solutions. I'd like to get to, to cost shortly. Oh. But before then, I'd love to talk quickly, ask you about zoning. Um, and this is going to showcase how much of a beginner I am when it comes to oh dear. to kind of, um, you know, how our cities are built. But my, my broad understanding is, um, 
and this is zooming way back, but but post World War II, we started building our cities in this in this view of, okay, we're going to put industrial in one corner, we're going to put residential in, in the second, we're going to put commercial in the third, and essentially every day people are going to, you know, travel to here to to work and then travel to here to shop and then come home. Um, I think increasingly we're realizing that that was a mistake. Um, and we're trying to build cities where everything is reachable and quickly. And so the good example of that is, is Paris, where the, the mayor, Anne Hidalgo, is, is trying to roll out this 15-minute city where you can access everything from your bakery as a French person to your, to your office, to whatever you need within 15 minutes by cycling or, 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 by, um, or by walking. And so I guess this is a convoluted way of getting to my question, which is, you know, a big part of your job is going out and finding residential or, or, or you know, assets from which you can do delivery. How much is zoning a headache for you? Um, well, I suppose it's not, I'm going to kind of say it's not really a headache for me in terms of I, I'm, you know, in terms of the, the delivery business will obviously need to consider what their requirements are. So, um, so in terms of, um, I'm not sure I fully understand it. in terms of zoning and just just give me a bit more on that in terms of the, you know, so are you there mean? are there a number of um, op, you know, the beauty of micro fulfillment centers is they're largely co-located with demand, and so um, you know, is it a, a recurring issue for Infinium? Are you going out and finding a, a space for, that you would like to turn into an MFC, but you cannot because it's zoned to be residential oh, or it's zoned oh, okay. to be yeah, a yeah, gotcha. kind yeah, yeah. of facility? Yeah, well. I suppose what we're typically looking at is where we know the demand is. We're looking at uh, right in the heart of the city centre. So some yep. of our competitors might say would look at a much wider range. I'm not really that. I'm I'm looking where the volume is now. Obviously, we're seeing some city changes. You know, particularly around office buildings and and you know uh, certainly post COVID, we've seen a, a material change there. Um, but because can you can yeah. you double click on the the material change that you're seeing post COVID? I mean, in terms of just we're we're seeing lots of. Um, we've been offered quite a lot of retail property, um, but again, we end up in the same sort of, you know, I, I don't really want something on the fourth floor. <laughs> I, I want something really uh, ideally on the ground floor would be perfect. Um, so, yeah, we're just seeing that, that you know, but also what the, the habits, and this is probably digressing into something else, but the habits of individuals has changed. I mean, I'm not a car parking expert, but just looking at what's happened is, you know, people have, you know, historically used to buy season tickets. Now, actually, I don't want a season ticket. I want a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesdays and Thursdays. I, I, I don't want to be in every day. But it's the same in office blocks. You know, we, 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 you know, you just have to walk around. It's the same in New York. Um, I've seen that recently. Just people are that the demand is uh, for for actual office building is uh, is 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 under challenge. But to answer your question, so I, I'm not. I'm probably. I'm very focused on finding where I believe to be the right locations. We've done a lot of analysis in terms of where where's the best. Yeah. Um, so what we're, you know, because if I ask somebody to uh, the open question, where would you like a hub? I, you know, I might not like, you know, it's it typically can be very, very niche to them. Um, but what I've preferred to do is find the right locations. Because if I'm looking at, you know, car parks as an example, there's only going to be a small fraction that will actually be workable okay. for lots of different reasons. Ramps, height, as Kevin's mentioned, can I park a large vehicle outside and a whole plethora of other reasons. So I'm very particular in terms of what I'm looking for. But I think it's fair to say with all the clear air zones growing, anything in a city centre in the UK or Europe is going, to be, uh, is going to be attractive. And my final point that we was just going to say is that from a cost point of view, I think the real estate world has realised that logistics is no longer the poor relation 
logistics is actually uh, 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 an industry that you know is uh, is growing and we can we can use that as a lever to get better rates yeah i think two things to add to the zoning one is it's about planning Mm-hmm. Um, planning has this horrible number called B8, I think it is, was, which yeah. means you can distribute from that point. Okay. Um, traditionally, that's only in industrial areas. Yeah. It's very rarely you get it in city centres. Okay. So you've got to go through a planning application for it, even if you find the right site. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And the, so therefore, when you're doing the zoning, I think it's incumbent, and I know we can do something on government, it's incumbent that we need to we need to face into that challenge um, because if we're going to put micro-fulfillment centres or micro-hubs, they've got to have the ability to be able to distribute from there and under the right planning, planning permissions. The second one is, in my experience, whenever you do a centre of gravity, and that can be on a big, big geography or a small geography, you will run the science and it will go, you need to be here. But the property's never there. Okay. Yeah, it just doesn't land on the circle. I think if you're going to do a uh, large uh, sortation centre, it will tell you to take over Coventry, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, we're going to have the same problem in cities. Um, where do we redevelop, I think? Where do we redevelop brownfield sites? How do we create those as micro or, or feed estate you know that's the challenge i think mm. we see it and paris might be doing a better job i'm not as close as you are but london in 32 boroughs have got to agree how they're going to are they really going to tackle this mm. because otherwise everybody's home we've just not got we've not got a solution to this problem that's interesting we have this episode coming up on how I'm our cities are changing which you know in my mind was going to be focused on cycling infrastructure and um, low traffic neighborhoods and how yeah. vans aren't able to get into city centers anymore. Um, but really a big piece of that is also around this, the zoning issue and, you know, how are we enabling these businesses to thrive? Um, you, were, you were talking a little bit about cost before and you're, you're right. I think we've, we've overlooked it. Um, and, and so going back to, to the narrative we laid out out front of this evolving model from um, taking fulfillment out of, the the kind of the outside of cities and putting it right into the middle of the cities, you're you're essentially adding a step there, right? There is um, there was no cross docking exercise before, and so we're adding we're adding one one step to the process, which you know ignoring everything else would in theory add costs because you need people to operate those micro hubs, you you need to to, to rent out those those micro hubs. Um, can you can you tell me, Kevin, why? You know what are the the elements that make this actually um, profitable to to transition to this model? Yeah, I think um, I think the it's about redeveloping what we know today. Okay, our minds are set on collecting goods at a certain time of day, moving to a sort centre, moving to regional, and then on the last mile journey. I think it's saying how could I move quantities in a continual flow maybe in smaller quantities that mm-hmm. then can then can skip the regional. So you're able to put them into large centres, into smaller nodes, and that node being a micro hub or a micro fulfilment centre, and making deliveries in a in a continual flow to those. So that might be every six hours, it might be every four hours, so that you don't get this build up of inventory during the day as people are ordering. Yeah. Moving in this big 
quantitative inventory. And the only way you can do that is through regional centres um, and then onto the micro hub. So you might end up with four big hubs that can go to maybe 2,000 sorts. But those sorts are at a root level. So you just put a postcode district sector. Mm -hmm. That goes down. You know it's going to micro hub. You're already planning the routing on it's on its way when you're dealing with it in a in a traditional same day model yep. i'm thinking paul yep. um and so you've got this flow of goods all the time um more of a river okay um <laughs> <laughs> rather than a dam and then they all go um so that's where in my mind i think that, so the cost comes out of taking a lot of regional large i mean these are big centres as Paul said you know mm. 60 70 of these centres you've got around the UK yeah servicing well what happens if that's four large or six large and then the micro centres as well you probably take it you've still got the same number of steps you've just got more endpoints yeah. that's where my mind's at no I agree with that you? yeah you know I agree with that two two very quick points one is we didn't really touch on this but there are some operators who've been using um sub what they would call sub depots hundreds of these smaller nodes around the country, they're typically in your sort of rural areas. So you'll drop the volume and then you'll have couriers coming to it. So it takes pressure off your your other locations. That's the first point. And secondly, I think the goalposts have now changed, as we touched earlier. Mm. It's not comparing like with like. You're now finding it more difficult to get in and out of cities in vans. And I think there was a study with, I'm going to say it was the University of Westminster, I hope I'm right on this, where they're saying, like, you're going to be able to, their, their report suggested that I'm going to deliver things 1.6 times, very precise, faster on a cargo bike than I would do in a van. So you're actually making savings in terms of your efficiency uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a slightly altered model. Okay. Yeah, I've probably got two examples. One is a network that still uses STEM mileage from a microsite, mm. yeah. and they're not getting that benefit. Another one where we're actually on zone, and are delivering at least 1.2 on a very mature network that a van can do. I think yeah. you, you two are now nerding out a little bit about the industry. What's uh, you said STEM miles? STEM miles, yeah. Somebody asked me what STEM miles was the other day, you know. And STEM miles is, is born from a flower. Okay. So a flower has a long stem yeah. and a flower at the top. And the flower at the top is your delivery zone. Okay. And your stem is where you go to the zone and back from the zone. Okay. I like that analogy a lot. And so, okay, I, I asked about cost. And you said um, micro-fulfillment at the end takes some of the strain off um, sortation and facility upstream. And so there's a potential cost decrease around there. And then, Paul, you're pointing out that um, micro-fulfillment enables the use of more efficient vehicles um, like a cargo bike, you're saying can deliver 1.6 times the, the, the amount of van can, and therefore that probably decreases labor and vehicle costs. Um, cargo bikes is something we'll talk about a lot in in, in the next um, episode. Um, and so those are two cost decreasing ways of thinking about why it makes sense to do this economically. Are there also um, kind of revenue generating ways of doing this? You know, given the fact that we're delivering faster given the fact that we're delivering more specifically to a specific window, and given the fact that it's often more traceable, like we talked about in the first episode, are those things that we can now charge for? Um, I think there are. Yeah. I think the first thing we need to tackle is delivery is not free. Yeah. You know, we build it into our price of products. Um, 
and therefore then it's always the the element of our delivery is under cost pressure yeah. or has been traditionally so therefore getting a consumer to think about there is a delivery cost even if it's free is is an education thing we need to try out the other thing then is what would happen if the big center in coventry was shipping on a continual basis well you could order it seven o'clock this morning and get delivery this afternoon and you could order at midday and get it this evening so there is this ability to be able to deliver faster and therefore would that carry a premium mm-hmm. um, if you ask for it today you would normally pay something at checkout to get something same day and that cost is often borne by the retailer right i feel often when i shop these days it is quote-unquote free shipping we know shipping is never free, and so that's a, a cost that the retailer is willing to take on themselves to to promote more more shopping, right? Yeah, and I suppose they offset it by they've not got the real estate costs of a traditional retail mm. um, with all the labor costs and energy costs and everything else. Great. Well, listen, we've been talking about this space very optimistically and positively. Um, let, let's be realistic here. And what, what are some of the key blockages to using microfilament centers or, or micro hubs? What's, what's limiting their rollout? Wow. Um, well, you, you touched on one earlier. I think it will involve, um, even though I think there's benefits, it will involve changes to the um, the operation. So mm-hmm. your standard operation's got to change. Um, Kevin's already touched on it, and you've mentioned it as well. Uh, I didn't really kind of, kind of recognize the, the zoning kind of term, but, but in terms of planning applications, and I think there is a role that the boroughs, not just in London, but around the country, I think can play in this, in trying to make that easier to... Um, to allow this type of operation because it's for the greater good. Um, so I think they would be the areas. I think it's still a relatively new asset class. I know we're going to touch on cargo bikes next time, but they're, they, these kind of come hand in hand because otherwise, why would you, you wouldn't run ice vehicles from a, it would be pointless. So it has to be electric vehicles, but then where do you store them? Where do you charge them? So you're kind of, you're, you're nearly kind of answering your own question by going to cargo bikes, but they're, they're unregistered. They're different types and shapes and sizes. There's no, there's no real sort of management process around it. So I think that I know that is another another session, but I think it's one that is a very important part of it. I do think it needs a level of regulation, whether it's permitting and also that people are working to the right standards, working conditions for, for the riders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, they would be the big things to me. I think a change of operational process, which doesn't suit every organisation, you know, they will look at it and they'll look at the costs and say actually. Based on the volume that we have, it doesn't really work for us. There's some very, very large players who've got a lot of volume that they control themselves. Um, they might have a different view. Um, These are also large players who, you know, are, are not the most nimble uh, companies out there. They've often been around for a number of decades. They're, they're, yeah, they're yeah, set yeah, in their ways uh, and trying to tell them, hey, you need to change the way you do this. You need to change your vehicles is, is, is a difficult battle, I'm sure. Yeah, and and yeah, there's a there's a large operation sits behind it. There's a lot of technology needs to be added into it. Some some organisations are very nimble. Great word to to in in that sense. And then it's all of the planning and stuff. So you can get everybody really fired up for it, and then you run into an issue of well, actually, where is the perfect location? I mean, I worked on a a, a project uh, in a particular city. Won't mention it, but suffice to say, we looked at a collaboration where it was a new build, so kind of a, a brand new facility it was going to be you know thousands of of new apartments and the idea was to actually build a delivery hub underneath it so actually it became like a little ecosystem 
where all the volume would go into that and it would be sorted like a little delivery station and then it would get dropped off either into lockers in the facilities or it would get delivered uh, but there would be a slight cost to it as part of your service charge where you could deliver it to your door. Um, and and just that one example would just make you think, actually, you know what, as we're, you, you mentioned it earlier about, you know, maybe cities, maybe if you started again, you might do it slightly differently. I think this would be an example of a case where you would. Great. Yeah. Kevin, barriers to, to roll out, rolling out microhubs? I think there's lots of skeptics. Yeah. I think the skeptics out there, you know, retailers, They've got retail outlets, but they've also got an e-commerce platform. How do those two come together? I think Paul makes a, a really good point. There is no dominant EV, light electric vehicle solution here. Um, I think some of the OEMs are starting to look at it now seriously. Um, early adopters are being penalised because of price. Okay. So if you're an early adopter in this field, your operating costs are much, much higher than than you need to be mm -hmm. so why do it you know why bother why don't we wait till it comes well i think that skepticism is probably the thing that's holding it back mm -hmm. great we can grill our, our guest next episode on this i'm sure the only thing i would add to that which i think is a is a potential upside is the is getting closer to the actual energy transition uh, because it's it's like everything else it's about how do you sustain your own business how do you store it and how then obviously can you you know, kind of build your business around that. So I think there's a lot of really good stuff coming out of this now where, you know, you are starting to kind of think longer term. So certainly something that we've been starting to look at is how do we not only get access to energy, but then how do we how do we manage that? So times of night that you might charge at. And that's the other thing as well. I think, you know, we, we touched a little bit of, you know, when I look at, say, car parks generally, unless it's near a hospital or, or, or a transit point, they're pretty much empty at night time. Mm -hmm. So... Is there a way that that could be worked out, you know, and and uh, you could store vehicles there? So there's all of those. I think there's a lot of really cool things that can be done. And I'm, I would say it's probably one of the most exciting times I can remember in logistics. So these are cool and really great challenges to have. Yeah. yeah. This is the um, most disruptive I can remember in the mm. logistics industry in all my time. Isn't that exciting? It is exciting. It is. Well, folks, uh, is there anything else or should we start wrapping up? Let's wrap Great. Yeah, I think it's good. Um, that was great. I think today we talked about um, how the logistics industry worked historically and how it's evolving today, notably around um, urban fulfillment in cities, um, its benefits, um, its drawbacks, its risks. Um, Paul, huge, huge thank you for coming on the show. Um, Thanks, you have a, a wide breadth of, of knowledge, and I'm sure we could talk about this for a few more hours if, uh, if I didn't try to hold you back. Um, Next episode, um, we're going to focus on something that we've brought up a few times today, which is more cargo bikes. So it's the next step. A, a parcel comes into MFC, and a big part of the reason that we have MFCs is to transfer that onto, onto cargo bikes. And so we'll talk about early adopters and costs and all those good things. We'll have a guest on from the industry. Um, having asked a lot of the questions today, because Kevin is a subject matter expert, we'll probably flip the script next week, and I think you'll be asking all the questions. I'll be talking about my learnings from Zumo. Um, until then, um, I'd ask everyone to remember to like and subscribe, um, and everyone have a great week. 